0: So I grew up in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, the home of gumbo and jambalaya and crawfish and po'boys, all the best food in the world. And uh, I grew up in a loving home, but God really wasn't the center of our home. So I, I went to church till I was like seven, prayed before meals till I was about 10, and then that kind of floated away. And uh, we really didn't discuss it in our house much. Faith or spirituality, and really none of my friends either, in their their houses. So I really wasn't around faith that much. But I did go to a private Episcopalian school system, and God was mentioned in a universalist sort of way. But it was enough to make me wonder every once in a while, like, is God real? Is He there? Um, And I just floated along the current of culture and did what every other middle schooler and high schooler was doing. And uh, I remember uh, decided to go to. Auburn University, War Eagle. A lot of you here did. And uh, the summer between my senior year of high school and my freshman year at Auburn, I was in my bed at night thinking about God, and I prayed. I said, God, if you're there, show yourself to me. And I thought, here we go. The, the, the walls are going to change color. A wind's going to come through the room, and A voice is going to speak out in the air, Ben, I'm here, you know. Well, nothing happened. I went to bed. And then, of course, he answered that prayer in a different way. When I got to Auburn a few months later, I had eight strong believers around me where I was living, because that's what Auburn is. It's a magical place (laughs) where everybody loves Jesus, and if you're not saved, you will get saved, so send your kids there. Um... No, but it was a privately owned dorm, so it was off campus. It was co-ed all throughout. It was actually known for people going there as freshmen at the apartment I was living in. And he says, I found this. I was looking through, you know, some old stuff, and I found this journal entry that I wrote about the night that I led you to the Lord. So I wanted to read that to y'all. This is from October 19th, 1997. It says, last night I had the privilege of leading my new neighbor, Ben Washer, to the Lord. Ben, Susan, Colleen, and I, got back from the Fiji party around 1.15 and went in Ben's room. Colleen, this is 1.15 a.m. Colleen had brought up a previous question about how people have been saying that Jesus is coming back for a thousand years and hasn't yet. I brought up her question and asked what she believed about that. It opened up a can of worms lasting over an hour, and God gave me the clear thinking and the right words to say that I needed to answer mainly questions Ben had about God. The Spirit touched his heart. And after he said, I'm waiting for something to happen, I asked if he wanted to pray and ask Jesus in his heart right then, and he said, yes, amen. The next morning he came up to me, his complexion peaceful, and said, I can't thank you enough for last night. We went to church this morning together, first time in five years for him. He wore a coat and tie. He said, it's a very special day for me. He had been suddenly touched by God and transformed by the renewing of his soul. God showed me that it's not me, it's all his timing. Everything revolves around his heavenly clock. He's shown me that I should pray for everyone's salvation I come in contact with. He has a reason for putting everyone where they are. To whom much is given, much is required. And Then I wanted to read the uh, scripture for today. Colossians 4, 2 through 6. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving.
1: Well, thanks so much, Ben, and uh, I was just so grateful for that story. I love that story for so many different reasons. Um, You know, it speaks to the power of God to change someone's life and to use someone. You know, here has been this uh, kid from Louisiana that didn't have much of a Christian upbringing, and God has just radically used him in so many ways uh, to touch so many people for the Lord uh, but it also speaks to being ready to give an answer for the hope that you have in the Lord. I, I love that Dave Harper, who I also know and I'm grateful for, um, he, it's one fifteen at, at night and the, the conversation of the Lord comes up and he's ready to speak into it. He's ready to, to, to tell his friend truth about who God is and how he can know him. He was, he was willing to enter into what the Lord was doing in Ben's life, even though he probably didn't know it. You know, I, I doubt that Ben had shared the story about him asking the Lord to reveal himself to him, but Dave was, was, t- was sensitive to that. He was willing to enter into what God was doing in Ben's life. And really, that right there, that idea is what I want to talk with you about for the next three weeks For three weeks, we're going to meditate on this verse. So uh, our Bible reading is not going to be vast over three weeks, but hopefully it's going to be deep. We're just going to look at these five verses because I think there's so much insight in them. And I think it's so instructive for who I hope that I am and for who I hope that we will be as a congregation. And we're really going to talk about this idea of entering into the Lord's work, this idea that has been called evangelism or sharing the gospel or sharing the Christian message. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, we we talked about evangelism. We were in John 4, if you remember, and we talked about uh, the woman's testimony in Samaria and how many people came to faith because of what she had said we talked about different things about evangelism we talked about the motivation for evangelism we talked about the scope of evangelism and the means of evangelism but we talked about the problem of evangelism and i guess i want to kind of begin there again today because again evangelism comes up people can get a little nervy You're nervous your palms get a little sweaty a few weeks ago, we talked about just kind of the, the problem of intrusion, you know, evangelism to share your faith, something so personal, can feel a bit intrusive. Uh, you know, it's, it's as if, look, I, my Christianity is important to me, it's special to me, but you don't have to share with everybody else. Just kind of let people believe what they believe. And, and if, you, if you've kind of had that difficulty or problem, then, then I would encourage you to, to listen to that sermon. We, we dealt with that problem a few weeks ago in that second sermon in the John 4 series. But I also want to deal with another problem today. It's, it's kind of a more of a doctrinal problem of evangelism, and it's the same problem that prayer has. You know, if God is sovereign, right, if, if God is saving people, if God is calling people to himself, if, if God is, is drawing people to be a part of his kingdom then what do we have to do? You know, are, is, is it us who's doing the work or is it God who's doing the work? If God, the ruler of the world, wants to save someone, why doesn't he just do it? Like, why, why do we need to get involved? Prayer has a similar problem, right? If, if God's will is determined, right, if God is sovereign, as we talk about, um, if God has all of this power, then what, what do our prayers do? What, what good are our prayers? Do our prayers really move the heart of God? In physics, they've done a lot of study of light. And physicists have concluded that light exists both as a particle and as a wave. Now, if you're a physicist here, you, I'm sure you know more about this than I do, but it's a, it's a mystery in physics. How does light do this? How can light both be particle and wave? It, it shouldn't work. It, it, both things should not be true. Yet there's evidence, as physicists have studied light, that both are true. And what this has been called is an antinomy. It, it's a, an apparent contradiction it seems that these two things should contradict, but yes, if you but yet if you want to be, if you want to be faithful to the evidence, if you want to be faithful to the facts that are discoverable, both things are true at the same time. J.I. Packer, who's a great Christian writer theologian, wrote a wonderful little book called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, and in it we have this book available at the book table over here. He he talks about this word, and, and he uses this word to talk about this problem of. Evangelism. Let me give you his definition of antinomy. He says, an antinomy is an apparent contradiction between conclusions which seem equally logical, reasonable, or necessary. It's an apparent contradiction between two conclusions or multiple conclusions which seem equally logical, reasonable, or necessary. And here's the deal. If, you're, if you've been serious about studying the Bible, antinomies are all over the Scripture. They're everywhere in the Bible. Do we have to persist in our faith? Or does God keep those who have come to faith? They seem to contradict. But if we want to be faithful to the Scripture, they're, they're both there, that we both persist and God keeps. Was the Bible written by human hands, or was it written by the Holy Spirit? Again, it seem those things don't seem to go together, yet, as we understand the doctrine of inspiration, as we looked at a few weeks ago with Bruce Ware, they do go together. Is God sovereign over everything, or is man responsible? Does God draw people to themselves and get to himself and give them faith, or does faith come by hearing the word of God through someone sharing the gospel? Again, all of these things in the Scripture, seem to contradict one another. In our simplistic way of thinking about biblical doctrine, they do seem to contradict. But if we take the Bible seriously, it's an antinomy. They're both equally logical, reasonable, and necessary. Now, some people will look at this and say, aha, see, (laughs) this is my problem with Christianity. This is my problem with the Bible. There's contradictions, right? You see, don't you, don't you Christians see the problem? There's contradictions in your Bible. Well, here's the problem with that kind of thinking. It's not like these contradictions are coming from different authors. It's not as if like one author said this and one author said that, that seems to contradict. These contradictions are happening in sometimes the same verse of Scripture. They're happening close together by the same authors. As if to say that the the biblical authors know what they're doing and they don't have a problem with it. In fact, the antinomy is how they are explaining the character of God. These, These aren't contradictions that take away from the credence of Scripture. They're intentional antinomies. I'll give you a couple of examples. Romans 9, right? This, this very famous passage on the sovereignty of God. Verse 15, for example. God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. That's Romans 9, okay? Very next chapter, Romans 10, okay? Just, just keep reading a few verses later. And we read in Romans 10, 13, "...for everyone who calls human action on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call in whom they've not believed? How are they to believe in whom they've never heard? Human action. How are they to hear without someone preaching? Human action. How are they to preach unless they are sent? Human action. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news." How are they to hear if there's not preaching? How are they to believe if they can't hear? All of these human will things, right after Romans 9, it depends not on human will. What is this? It's an antinomy. It's seemingly contradictory statements that are both necessary. Here's another example. Philippians 2, and this one's in the same verse, 12 and 13, or the same two verses. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. You, human action, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You work out, for it is God who works. What does this mean? Again, these, these biblical authors know what they're doing, right? This isn't, this isn't contradiction in Scripture that in some way debunks Scripture. No, it's actually contradiction that, a seeming contradiction that reveals more to us about the character of God. Now, if you've been hung up on this, if this makes you a little uneasy, I just want to say this. Just stay in it because these antinomies, these tensions, if you will, in our Christian faith are actually the very things that give me the most solace and comfort and rest and mission and person. They're they're actually the very things that make sense of my relationship with the Lord. They are the things that give me peace while I have mission and purpose and life in the Lord. If you think about it this way, if you fall too far over here on the God is sovereign, what can I do? His will is determined side of things then you won't pray. You won't read your Bible. You won't share your faith. You won't talk to people about Jesus. You won't pursue the Lord. You won't take the human action that the Bible clearly calls you to. And you know what will happen? Your heart will get cold. You won't depend on the Lord. You won't delight in the Lord, the very thing that God designed you to do. But on the other side, if you fall so far into the human responsibility side Here's the deal. If you really think about it, you'll be equally frozen. You'll be equally cold. You will be riddled with incredible, if you really work this out mentally, you will be riddled with incredible fear and anxiety. Some of y'all have heard me quote the little short story. It's called The Sound of Thunder by Ray Bradbury. It's a great little short story. It's about a time machine. And there's these two guys. There's a guy, Travis, that kind of runs the time machine, and Eccles. And he's, he, Travis is going to take Eccles back in time. And he says, look, Eccles, when we go back in time, there's going to be a path. Stay on the path. Whatever you do, don't step off the path. And Eccles says, well, what's the big deal? I mean, why can't I step off the path? And, you know, Travis says, well, if you step off the path, you might kill a mouse. And Eccles says, okay. What's the big deal? What if I kill a mouse? And here's Travis's reply. He says, say we accidentally kill one mouse here. That means that all the future families of this one particular mouse are destroyed. With the stamp of your foot, you annihilate first one, then a dozen, then a thousand, a million, a billion possible mice. What about the foxes? They'll need those mice to survive. For the one of 10 mice, a fox dies. For the one of 10 foxes, a lion starves. For the one of a lion, all manner of insects, vultures, infinite billions of life forms are thrown into chaos and destruction. Eventually, it all boils down to this. A caveman, one of a dozen in the entire world, goes hunting for a wild boar or a saber-toothed tiger for food. But you, my friend, have stepped on all the tigers in that region by stepping on that one single mouse. So the caveman starves. Destroy this one man, and you destroy a race, a people, an entire history of life. Perhaps Rome never rises on its seven hills. Perhaps Europe is forever a dark forest. Step on a mouse, and you crush the pyramids. Queen Elizabeth might never be born. Washington may never cross the Delaware. There may never be a United States at all. So be careful. Stay on the path. Never step off. If you believe that human action is the, is the only determination of everything that happens. If you can't rest in the divine providence of God, and in God working out his plan and will, you will be so riddled with anxiety and fear you you'll be equally frozen. You won't do anything. It's actually this antinomy. It's actually this tension between divine Uh, divine authority and human responsibility that actually makes the Christian life work, that brings us, that gives us at the same time, mission, purpose, meaning, and rest, and peace, and joy. God has established this beautiful design. He has created the world where in his sovereignty, Where we're in a world where his providence does reign, but where he invites us in his design to carry out his plans with our human action. He's even designed a world where our requests, our appeals to him, are part of the means that he uses to carry out his own divine will. You know, there are several times in Scripture, you have to take Scripture seriously, there are several times in Scripture where God said he's going to do something, human action happens, and God does something different. Think of the story of Jonah, right? I'm going to destroy Nineveh. But Jonah goes and preaches, the people repent. God doesn't destroy Nineveh. It was ultimately part of God's plan to save Nineveh, but he designed this whole scenario, designed the world in such a way where human action is invited in. It's a part of his story. Think of Genesis 32. Remember... I'm sorry, Exodus 32. Remember Exodus 32 where Moses goes up to Mount Sinai? This is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. It it makes me feel better as a parent, actually. Moses goes up. He, he's at Mount Sinai meeting with God. He left Aaron in charge. He comes back down and Aaron's made a golden calf. Everybody's worshiping the calf. Moses goes to Aaron. And he says, what have you done? What are you doing? What, what are these people worshiping the calf? And Remember Aaron's reply? is like, look, the people gave me their gold. I threw it in a fire and out came the calf. And it just makes me feel like, I hear that answer from my children all the time. You know, I didn't, I didn't do it. This has happened, Dad. I didn't mean to do this. And uh, anyway, that doesn't really advance the point. But the the point I was trying to make here is that not only is Moses angry, God is angry. Remember that passage in Exodus Exodus 32? God says, I'm going to destroy them all. I'm going to start over. I'm so angry with them. Remember what Moses does? He appeals. He says, God, please be merciful to your people. He actually appeals to God on behalf of God's own promises. He takes God's promises and says them back to God. And, And this most amazing verse in Exodus 32, it says... Um, Exodus 32, 14, the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. This is how God works. In his perfect providence, he uses real meaningful actions of people to carry out his perfect will. He used the evangelism of Jonah. He uses the prayers of Moses. And I just want you to hear this. If you are a Christian, the same thing has happened to you. We were all under disaster, we all know John 3.16, but maybe you don't know John 3.18, which says, whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in Jesus is condemned already. Condemned because of our sin. So in a very real way, what what John is saying here is, we were no different than the Ninevites. We were no different from the people of Israel that worshipped the calf. God's anger was toward us because of our sin, yet, God, in His kindness, in His grace, sent His own Son to be an advocate for us, to be an intercessor, a go between for us. Real action happened. Jesus really came and lived a righteous life, and He died our death, and He rose from the dead, defeating death. Real action happened on earth, and through that action, there is now a way of salvation for all of us. Jesus really had to obey. He really had to endure these things. It's how God brought about his design for our redemption, his design for our salvation. And here's the deal. Jesus not only takes these kinds of actions, he invites people like us now to be a part of these actions, to to join him in his work, to, to come into this work that God is working out. He is inviting us in. Ben mentioned we had our first little covenant cohort meeting the other night. Ben and I are in it together. There's a couple, two other guys. And we had this great conversation. We, the first meeting, we sat around and shared our story. And we ate four guys sitting around. We ate steaks. It was awesome. But we all shared our story. We all talked about how the Lord had saved us. What, what God had done to bring us to himself. And you heard it in Ben's story Dave Harper, this guy, this little Fiji frat guy stepped in at the right moment and God used him to totally change Ben's life. Dave was willing to be used by God. He was willing to enter into the story and God used him. And every one of those guys, all four of us, th- there, was, there was a Dave Harper in every story or sometimes a couple of Dave Harpers. Somebody that entered in right at the right time that was there and, and, and was that God's design or was that their action? It was both. It was just an antinomy. But they were there. They were willing to be used by God to make a difference in each of our lives. And really the point of this series, if all of that was an introduction, dealing with this doctrinal problem of evangelism, now we can move on. Really the point of this series is that it's an invitation to all of you. God is at work. God is restoring all of creation, and he wants you to be a part of it. And your actions and your obedience to this disciple-making command that Jesus has given us is important. It's meaningful. It's powerful. And and so this is an invitation through the Scripture for all of us to be a part of this work, to enter in to this work that God is doing. And and, there's—and what I want to look at today as we look at this passage— again, we're going to be here three weeks— but it's this, the importance of prayer in this work. And there's three, there's three kind of things that I want to look at today in the passage. It, it tells us a lot about who to pray for. This passage tells us a lot about what to pray. But it also tells us how to pray. Who to pray for, what to pray, and how to pray. And, and I believe this is a very powerful passage in terms of entering into the Lord's work uh, of evangelism. So first of all, who to pray for? Now, in verse 5, we kind of see it's, a, it's this prayer toward, it's this, it's this movement toward outsiders, walking wisdom toward outsiders. I believe the, the urge to prayer is a prayer for outsiders. And, and really what this means is people that are not of faith, people that have not been converted to faith in Christ, that are not looking to faith in Jesus. Now, some of the language that we use here at Christ's Covenant and I think it's, it's helpful language, is we talk about inward-facing relationships and outward-facing relationships. So inward-facing relationships are those relationships that we have with other believers, right? For the most part, this is an inward-facing relationship relationship. We're coming together as followers of Christ to stir one another along by singing, by the preaching of God's Word, by praying together toward faith and good deeds. Now, there may be some of you here today, and I'm glad that you're here, that are not believers. Now, I think one of the great appeals for this is I would want you to watch, okay, what do inward-facing relationships look like? How do Christians treat each other? How do Christians worship the Lord together? And so I'm really glad that you're here seeing this, a part of this. But this, for the most part, Your community groups, uh, conversations you have with Christian friends, maybe some prayer partners, those are inward-facing relationships. When the church gathers, we enjoy inward-facing. And I just hope, I'm just praying for them. I pray for them regularly, and I pray that God would use me in their life, that I would be a part of what God wants to do in their life. Um, And I hate to admit this, I've been doing this I probably first started doing this about six or seven years ago. And in that six or seven years, just by having this little card in my wallet, I keep it right there in my little credit card slot. I have prayed for, I have prayed evangelistic prayers really more than I ever have in my life. The thing is, I need the reminder. I've needed this little system in my life. Now, if you have a great system, I'm not saying for you to adopt this, but it is a tool. This series is a call for table talk, it's a call to be used by God, to enter into what God is doing, and a big part of that is prayer. Do you have any rhythm where you regularly pray for people that don't know the Lord? Now, the second thing that this passage is, is it doesn't tell us who to pray for. It tells us what to pray. And I love this. This is so instructive, so helpful. Here it is. It's pray that God would open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. Pray that God would open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. Now, here's the mistake that a lot of people make with evangelism. Christians, they feel the burden of evangelism. They understand how important it is. They see the beauty of it. I mean, God is inviting us into his work. They see the consequences of it. They want people to come to know the living God. And so they say, I gotta be about this, but they miss this step. They forget this step. They don't pray that God would open a door. And so a lot of Christians kind of have this mentality of, I know i got to get the word out, so I'm going to just tear down the door, right? I am going to share the gospel with this person, whether they like it or not, right? Now, I think this comes actually from a good motivation, from a good place. We should desire to share our faith. But this kind, without being sensitive to the Lord's work. Remember it's not, it's not all human responsibility. It's us entering into what God is doing. And this kind of evangelism can actually do more to hurt the cause of Christ than it can do to help the cause of Christ. And so I love this step. Here's the step. Pray that God would open a door. And here's the deal, guys. He will if there's someone in your life that you're burning they don't know the Lord, pray that God will open the door. I guarantee you, I have experienced this so many times in my life where God opens the door. Now, those doors look a little different, right? There's a lot of different kinds of doors. And this is where, you know, there's some training, and we're going to have some training uh, kind of connected with our groups throughout this series. And this is just where Bible study and Christian discipleship kicks in. But there's a lot of different kinds of doors. There's, there's the apologetic door. For example, now, if you remember the Dave Harper story that Washer told, there was a question that came up about the return of Christ. People had some serious questions. Tell, explain this to me. There needed to be an answer. There's a lot of people that they just, they may be misinformed, they may be bothered, they may not have all the facts. Um, and so that's a, that's a meaningful door. Another door related is, is the door of meaning. I say this is a door that, that I feel like the Lord opens to me all the time especially, you know, people as they get older, they start asking themselves the question, what's the purpose of my life? What does this mean? What am I here for? What am I anchored in? What is true? What is right? A lot of times these, this door opens when I have conversations with people about books or movies. A lot of times books and movies, they they deal with meaning. They deal with kind of deeper things in life. Now you may say, well, hold on. I'm not much of a philosopher. That's okay. There's other doors. There's the story door, Right. When somebody shares with you their story, they say, this is kind of what my life has been like. You know what that does? That op- that's an invitation for you to share your story. And then you can say, hey, let me tell you my story. And let me tell you what's most important in my life. That's an amazing door for the gospel. They just share the hope of the Lord. And I could tell that their heart was warming to these things. Now, you may have a system, as I said before. Um, I'm not asking you to adopt this system if you already have a system. You know, some of y'all know may know Frank Barker. Anybody's from Birmingham. Frank Barker's a longtime uh, pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian. Frank's got this very complex prayer system that he walked me through one time. I and mean, Frank is just this prayer warrior. Like on Monday, for example, it's M-O-N. So he prays like M, he prays for missionaries, and he prays O for like other ministries, like Young Life, Campus Crusade in for non-believers, right? So he's, if you've got the, you know, if Frank Barker's here, you're good. You know, you don't need, you don't need the tabletop card. But if you've got a great system, but, but if you don't, if there's nothing that you have in your life that's regularly engaging you in this rhythm of what I'll call door prayers, this is a good tool. And so I invite you, even before we leave today, to just jot down three names to put this in a place where you'll regularly see it. So we've looked at who to pray for, what to pray. But last, how do we pray? And there's a lot in this passage it's so helpful. First of all, steadfast. Pray steadfastly. I'm going to go ahead and break it to you. If you're new to Christianity, Christianity is not like a quick thing. It's, it's, not, a, it's not like full of explosions. It, Christianity is it's steadfast. It's faithfulness. The analogies that the Bible uses when it talks about fruitfulness are not like analogies of fireworks. It's analogies of like trees or plants. A lot of times these things take a long time to come to fruition. As I said, uh, there are literally been people that I have been praying for for 20 years that God would open doors. And he's opened little doors here and there, but not completely. Am I willing to be steadfast? Are you willing to be steadfast? If you remember, don't you know that your your faith is not self-determined? Don't you know that your faith is a gift? Don't you know that it's given to you by the Lord and it's given to you through the means of his church? That there was somebody at some point in time that prayed for you. There was somebody at some point in time that stepped in, that was an intercessor for you, that, that was ready to give an answer for the hope that they have to you. Don't you see this? Don't you know this? You, you are one who has received, so be grateful. This will totally change the way that you pray. And then the third thing here is it's intercessory prayer. And I love this word, to be an intercessor that's the invitation. That's really what the whole day is about. Will you be an intercessor? Will you go between? Will you stand in the way for someone? Will you bear someone else's burden through prayer? Will you intercede? on someone's behalf. You know, there's this old famous adage that's, it's been said, you've probably heard it before, but it says, if if all of a sudden God answered all your prayers, would the whole world change or would only your world change, right? Is the subject of your prayers just you? God bless me. God do this for me. God please do this. Or are you the kind of person that steps in, that intercedes on behalf of someone else? That's really what Paul is asking. He's asking, please intercede for me. Please intercede for other outsiders. And I think this is the call to us to be an intercessor. I'm inviting you, the the precious members of this church. There are so many people that I believe that are around you all the time in your homes, maybe in your homes, maybe in your neighborhoods, in your workplaces, at your gym, that God wants to move in their life. And he's inviting you to be a part of that story. Are you willing to intercede? Are you willing to go between? Are you willing to pray for them? Are you willing to speak when God opens the door? And here's the deal. Christians are good intercessors. Real Christians are good intercessors because we have been interceded for. We are the people that have been interceded for. We are the people that needed an intercessor. We needed someone to make an appeal for us. We needed someone to go between for us. And Jesus the Lord has done this. You know, people will say, man, to be an intercessor, that is uncomfortable. To to pray for people or to speak my faith to people, that can be really uncomfortable. Don't you know that you have an intercessor in Jesus the Lord who went from the most comfortable place, the throne of God, to the least comfortable place, the cross, bearing your sin? Don't you see what kind of intercessor you have? when you start to see that, you, you will desire to do the same. People will say, man, you know, praying, that's a, that takes a lot of time. Don't you know that you have an intercessor who prays for you? You know, even on the night that he was arrested, he prayed out to God, I pray for all that will come to know me, to follow me through my disciples, which is us. You see that Jesus is appealing to God for you? You'll say, well, being an intercessor, that's, that's a burden you know, What if I start praying for evil and, you know, interacting with them and they start dumping all this on me? Don't you know that you have an intercessor who was willing to carry your burden? And not just to the point of uncomfortness or uncomfortability, but to the point of death. Jesus took on our greatest burden, our burden of sin, our, our burden of death. He, he was willing to do more than just be uncomfortable for us. He was willing to die for us. And he was steadfast and he was faithful. He's an intercessor, don't you see? And so as we meditate on, I believe what the Lord is leading us as a church to be, a bunch of intercessors in this city, people engaging in what God is doing in this city, I want to invite you to just spend a few moments meditating on your intercessor. And so if you'll bow your heads with me. Dad, I want you to hear this said, this is my body. This bread represents my body that is broken. And here's what he says. For you. On behalf of you. For your sake. I'm standing in the way. I'm interceding with my own body for you. And then he took the cup. And he said, this is my blood. This cup represents my blood that spilled out for You, on behalf of you. And whenever you eat this bread, whenever you drink this cup, remember this. Remember what I've given you. And so if you're in Christ today, I invite you to take these elements as just a way to remember who we what we've been given in Christ, who we are in Christ. That we 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 do have before God Himself this amazing plea. We don't have to fear. We, we have been redeemed. We've been renewed. We've been called in. Now, if you're not a believer here today, again, I'm so glad you're here. I'm so, I'm so glad that, that you would come and, and see what we have going on and, and learn with us. But this is actually a meal just for people that call on the name of Jesus. So as the elements are being passed by, if you've already taken them, maybe just you can just set them down. But this is for a meal. This is an act that we only want for people that are, are, have claimed the name of Jesus, that are following Christ in faith to take part in. In fact, actually, the Bible gives a warning for people that would do this in an an unworthy way, meaning that they haven't followed Christ. So if you're, you're not a believer, just you can put your hand up or cover your heart and the deacons will pass you by. But let's meditate on all these things as the elements are being passed, as Matt leads us, and then we'll take these elements corporately together here in a few moments.